How can our dietary choices affect and even influence cancer outcomes? My guest today is going to help us find out. You're listening to Nutrition Edge on ReachMD, and I'm dietitian Kathy King. Joining me today is dietitian and board-certified clinical nutritionist with 44 years of clinical experience, Diana Nolan. She is on the adjunct faculty of the University of Kansas Medical Center Dietetics and Nutrition Department. She also has a private practice in Burbank, California, where she specializes in complex metabolic conditions, oncology, and gastrointestinal neurological chronic diseases. Diana is an international educator and speaker in integrative and functional nutrition therapy. Today we'll be discussing monitoring important nutritional biomarkers to improve oncology outcomes. Diana, welcome to the program. Thank you, Kathy. Glad to be here. Can nutrition play a role in the genesis of cancerous cells? And another question, do we think cancer and nutrition interact and affect one another? Oh, yes. And I I do work quite a bit with oncology patients and have realized uh, the importance of nutrition and cancer, whether it's being promoted or progressing different stages. And also whether someone's microenvironment inside their body, metabolism, if it's actually uh, vulnerable for a cancer to begin. We know that all cancer really is down to mutations when the cells divide and produce daughter cells. And one of the things that's been identified is the methylation that is occurring in the DNA mitochondria during that process. And so methylation is really about nutrients. We know that methylation is dependent on B vitamins, specifically B12, B6, and folate. And there are others, but those are the primary ones. And if they are not adequate in a person's nutritional status, methylation cannot occur correctly and much bigger chance of mutations to occur. Now, that's one aspect. In 2000... There were some studies that were published identifying the hallmarks of cancer because previous to that in oncology, in conventional oncology, we were really only looking at when the cancer had occurred. We're looking at imaging. We're looking at specific cancer markers. For instance, like in ovarian cancer, you're looking at CA125. And we, in this presentations on the hallmarks of cancer, they identified eight different aspects of metabolism that could go awry for a different cancer. And not all of them always applied, but those hallmarks of cancer were what I took and I found the nutritional implications from those systems, those metabolic pathways that were identified and found that there were nutrient cofactors that were limiting if they weren't there. So when we have someone who comes in with nutritional insufficiencies, it's very beneficial for that patient to be able to identify what those insufficiencies are that are related to all of health but also cancer and be able to assess where they're at and if they need intervention with food or with sometimes dietary supplements or sometimes IV nutrient therapies, which is a growing field in oncology. So 
Nutrients are rate-limiting nutrient cofactors for structure and for function of cellular matter. And we need to really take a, a second look at that and bring that into oncology practice. With your keen interest in physiology and biochemistry of nutrition, please tell us what are some of the nutritional problems to look for in patients dealing with cancer and its therapies and which cancer locations are the most difficult to treat nutritionally? The nutrients that have been shown by uh, research to be very strongly associated with vulnerability of cancer going the wrong way are vitamin D. We know vitamin D has many implications uh, metabolically in, in every chronic disease, but in cancer, we do know that someone that is low vitamin D is going to have a harder time in survival in successful outcomes. And so checking that, and the studies have shown that anything less than 40 nanograms per milliliter will be at higher risk for problems in metabolism, being able to recover. So that is something that's easy to check. Every lab has that test, vitamin D25-hydroxy, and then someone can intervene depending on that individual's level. Another thing we're finding out is the genomics. Vitamin D receptors on the nucleus, it's a nuclear receptor of every cell in your body, and that vitamin D receptor can determine the efficiency of a person's ability to use vitamin D. And just practice-based evidence that I have seen is I do check the vitamin D receptor genomics on patients, and every ovarian cancer patient I've had so far, that's just about, I would say, 35 that I've been able to get that vitamin D receptor genomic test, every one of them has had a double SNP, which is a homozygous positive vitamin D receptor, which means about 50% reduced efficiency in using vitamin D. And then they've matched that with a very low vitamin D, like 7 or 10. And that is like a perfect storm for not having the ability to have hormone regulation, to not have immune modulation, because the vitamin D is really a pro-hormone that is uh, responsible for that. Also, looking at their diet, if someone is a high-sugar diet, and Americans right now, the latest stats I've seen are 150 pounds of sugar per year per person, and somebody's eating mine because I'm not eating that much, but if they have a diet that is high in sugar, it is going to encourage poor nutritional status and we don't know all the mechanisms, but we do know it's not a good idea, and it will increase risk of cancer. Another one is looking at the food containers we have because we know that uh, it is related to nutrition because it comes in on our food. Are these endocrine disruptors? If you're using uh, liners in a, in a cup from a coffee shop that is BPA plastic, it is going to be an endocrine disruptor and make your nutritional metabolism more difficult. And then, of course, the other is the methylating nutrients. And these nutrients are primarily folate, B12, and B6. And I specifically did not say folic acid, even though most studies have been done in folic acid. Folic acid is a synthetic, and 
we're finding hints that maybe it isn't as good as the natural folate, especially if someone has methylating genomic inefficiencies. All right. Studies show added weight on the high side of normal can be beneficial for patients going through cancer and its therapies. Do you find that true? I do if they are going through chemo or radiation because that is where it's almost a given that they're going to lose weight. And sometimes if they start out with a normal weight, a healthy weight, then uh, they're going to lose so much weight being catabolic that it can be pretty dangerous for them. But I think weight is a bigger picture than just how much did you weigh. I think that one of the things we look at in those hallmarks of cancer is more than weight. We're looking at what type of weight. And we're looking at visceral adipose tissue, the central adiposity. And the more of that that has gone on, which is called sarcopenia, the loss of muscle, it is an increased problem in the vulnerability of cancer and also in being able to heal and resolve a cancer. And the other thing is that visceral adipose tissue is also known now to be an endocrine organ that secretes inflammatory cytokines and other mediators that encourage the cancer environment. And also it is an indicator of hyperinsulinemia, which is a blood sugar management problem. And we do know that weight is related to sleep So, yes, a little weight if you're going through the conventional chemo or radiation therapies is good, but it's a bigger picture than that. And you also want to look at their body fat percent. It's good to have a machine in your office that can be able to identify that. Because the BMI is inadequate um, for identifying. Yes, I can certainly see that. Thank you. You're listening to ReachMD. I'm Kathy King, and I'm speaking with dietitian Diana Nolan. We're talking about monitoring important nutritional biomarkers to improve oncology outcomes. Diana, which nutritional biomarkers are often overlooked, and do all labs offer testing for these markers? I do like to use conventional labs and not get into specialty labs unless I need to. And the, uh, I mentioned vitamin D25-hydroxy. It's very easy to order. Another one is folate. There is a serum folate test, or you can do an RBC folate. Of course, the RBC folate is going to be a more accurate as to cellular status. Another one I really encourage, um, because I have to request the doctor order these tests, I really encourage that looking at B12 status by three different tests, and not just B12, but methylating status. I'm looking at B12 in a functional marker called methylmalonic acid. It's available from any lab, and it gives a much better cellular status of B12. And another one would be the folate that I mentioned. Another one is a CBC. Nutritionally, we can look at a CBC and, you know, you get a hemoglobin hematocrit and look at the MCV, the mean corpuscular volume, and also the MCH. But the mean corpuscular volume 
is nutrient dependent on B6, B12 folate. And if it if somebody has a high level or a high end or uh, actually high, that means that they need more of those B vitamins. And that is going to also be a very good indicator that they aren't methylating very well. When we have macrocytic red blood cells, which is indicator from MCV being high, we know that they cannot function correctly, they cannot carry oxygen as well to the cells, and it really is a dependent on the B6 folate and B12. Another one is RDW. That is going to be included in most CBCs. The red blood cell distribution width, and that is a very good one to look at. We really want it around 12, ideally. And as it starts to creep up, we know there's a lot more irregularity in the cells of the blood. And it can be because of essential fatty acid deficiency. It can be from folate deficiency. And so we want to look at that. What I often do, Will, if it is high, the next time they get a blood draw, I will request a manual morphology, which the lab microbiologist will be able to tell you why the RDW is high. That's a handy thing because the RDW, usually the lab will not give you a, uh, a manual morphology unless it reaches a super high level. And so, but you can request it no matter what. And the other is hypercoagulation. That is one of the hallmarks that encourages cancer growth and promotion is when we our blood is too thick and, and congested. And so the two markers to look at in the blood for that is the platelets that are going to be in the CBC. So you get a lot of information in that CBC. And also looking at fibrinogen, and that usually is a separate order. And those two together, fibrinogen, we like to have it not higher than 350 because it's getting at that hypercoagulation point. The last one I'm going to mention is IGF-1, which is insulin growth factor. That is something that is indicating that you have too much growth going on, and that is not what we want as an adult. It can be different for children if you're looking at pediatric oncology, but for adult oncology, that is actually now being a prognostic indicator. Uh, so we don't want too much growth going on. So once oncologists see these high-risk biomarkers, what should they do nutritionally? Because I think oncologists don't have the, the benefit of the training on how to assess and intervene using some of these tests, but they certainly can gain that information. And I know we have a class at the University of Kansas all about the immune and inflammatory dysregulation and how to nutritionally manage that. So that would be one thing they could do is take a class like that, or hopefully we can get more information to the oncologist that they can understand that also. Because nutrition management is not any one discipline, discipline's ownership. But we all in the healthcare business need to be aware of these things. Very good. Thank you. Can you, Diana, summarize three or four points about uh, what to remember about oncology and nutrition and improving outcomes? Metabolism is nutrients in action. And in cancer, the nutrients make a big difference whether the cancer 
goes on to progression and metastasy, or if it actually can resolve itself along with the treatments that the oncologist can give. They're very complementary to each other. Another one is optimizing nutrition status of an individual, and it will promote a more successful outcome. Also, remembering other lifestyle factors like sleep, because that affects weight. It affects the nutritional metabolism. It affects hormone regulation and immune system regulation. So it's all one big picture. I appreciate it. Diana, as usual, you bring such wonderful clinical insight to our attention. Thank you for being here. We've been discussing monitoring important nutritional biomarkers to improve oncology outcomes. I'm Kathy King. You've been listening to Nutrition Edge on ReachMD. Be sure to visit our website on ReachMD.com featuring podcasts of this and other series. Thank you for listening. <music>